Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Welcome to New Books Network in Southeast Asian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nicole Corato, Professor of Political Sociology at the Centre for Deliberative Democracy and Global Governance at the University of Canberra, Australia, and co-host of the channel. Today, I'm talking to Professor Lynette J. Chua, Professor of Law from the National University of Singapore. Professor Chua is the author of Politics of Rights in Southeast Asia, published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. Her book examines the structural conditions that influence the emergence of rights mobilization in the region, the various ways in which people mobilize these rights, and the consequences of these mobilizations. Professor Chua, welcome to New Books Network in Southeast Asian Studies. Oh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me to the show. All right. So let's start with a puzzle you set out in the introduction. Southeast Asia is a diverse region. Uh, There are various normative orders and meanings associated to rights, various genealogies, etc. And so the book proposed a socio-legal approach of politics of rights as the analytical starting point. So first, give us a sense of what a socio-legal approach entails. And second, why do you think this was a good starting point for such a complex topic? Um, what I mean by socio-legal approach is actually uh, linked to the field in which I specialize, which is law and society, uh, sometimes referred to also as socio-legal studies. Um, the socio-legal approach to the study of law regards law as a social phenomenon or a social fact that we as scholars set out to investigate um, and we are interested in the ways in which law is embedded in society in other normative orders such as uh, gender, class, and other uh, social structures. And we're interested in how law and these other social structures and relations uh, shape one another. What is the impact of the use of law on people's identities, on the social relations, and so on and so forth. In other words, um, unlike, let's say, and this perhaps goes into a little bit of caricature, but I think it's helpful to explain what I mean by a socio-legal approach, unlike uh, conventional legal scholars who might study uh cases or court opinions and statutes trying to interpret what the legislature of a particular government uh, intended the law to be. Uh, Socio-legal scholars or law and society scholars um, are interested in in how law actually plays out in action on the ground. And so therefore, we do not take the uh, statute provisions or court opinion as 
a given, but rather we investigate how they actually play out on the ground. And to do that, we often or we usually uh, employ uh, methods that are very common in the social sciences, such as uh, participant observation, interviews, ethnography, historical archival work, uh, discourse analysis, and so on and so forth. And from there, we try to understand the meanings of laws as they are experienced, interpreted by different actors. These could include governed populations, marginalized elite populations, and so on and so forth, as well as elite actors and former legal actors like judges, uh, politicians, and so on and so forth. And to answer uh, your second question about why I thought this was a helpful approach to to, to uh, analyze this complex topic of rights in Southeast Asia. Well, first of all, I, as I mentioned, I am uh, trained and I am a specialist on law and society. And to me, as I looked at the uh, very plural region of Southeast Asia where I grew up, it occurred to me always, has always been to me that uh, we have to understand how people uh, experience rights or experience the law from the ground up. And these experiences and interpretations are probably going to differ from place to place, from social group uh, to social group. And I thought this, uh, the socially ap- approach was naturally a good fit for understanding uh, rights in Southeast Asia. Experiencing the law from the ground up, that's quite powerful. And I'm actually quite intrigued by the case you made for an empirical informed nature of the politics of rights, as opposed to uh, the liberal rights perspective and the critical rights perspective. How does your work on Southeast Asia uh, speaks to these debates? I see uh, a socio-legal approach as a way to interrogate or verify claims from these different normative perspectives, whether it is uh, a liberal rights uh, perspective or a critical rights perspective. Uh, Again, to make it more succinct for my explanation, you know, a liberal rights perspective person might believe in the power of rights to protect and empower uh, marginalized populations. A critical rights perspective a scholar may will, will have a more skeptical view, a very critical view perhaps of rights, doubting its ability to fulfill the, these uh, liberal promises of rights. Now these perspectives are what are, are normatively driven in the sense that the scholar takes the view uh, prescribing or arguing that rights work or rights are great or rights uh, don't work uh, because they bring certain harms to certain populations. Um, the socio-legal approach, um, they do not take these normative claims as a, as a given or as a conclusion, but it sets out to uh, find out whether these claims actually are realized or do, do they, whether they actually materialize on the ground. And, and perhaps the conclusion through the analysis of the data that the researcher collects uh, is a little bit more nuanced, but perhaps it might sometimes uh, support the normative claims of the liberal rights perspective, or in some cases, it could lend support to the critical rights uh, scholars' perspective. 
So does that mean that the socio-legal uh, approach is then normatively ambivalent, that on its own, it's not advancing a particular normative agenda compared to the liberal and critical rights perspective? This is actually a very good question. And I think um, it's a question that all socio-legal scholars should constantly uh, bear in mind as they uh, go about with their empirical research. Now, at first glance, it would appear that it is normative ambivalent, perhaps because uh, we take the view that all rights or law are what uh, the people on the ground or this social group that you're investigating experience or say what they mean. Um, and now if you would take it to its logical conclusion, you will say that, well, then doesn't mean that it is whatever these people mean, and therefore it's ambivalent. So I actually struggled with that, and and I perhaps you saw that in as you read the uh, the politics that rights in Southeast Asia, as well. But at the same time, I'm quite well aware of the socio legal studies tradition. I'm I'm actually trained uh, in law and society in the U.S. and from that line of law and society tradition, uh, a lot of that scholarship and the pioneers of that field were very much influenced by progressive politics. And they do set about trying to understand, or they did set about trying to understand the uh, promise and also the limits of rights in, in improving the lives of the marginalized. So when I, when I go back and think about this tradition and this deep commitment to uh, the improvement of the lives of the marginalized and the concerns for them, it becomes really hard to say necessarily that social uh, sociolegal studies is normative ambivalent. Um, and that's why in the volume, I talked about an emic and etic approach. And of course, some scholars may disagree with me working in the same field. I think that the way to sort of break out of this quandary is perhaps uh, to go, when we are going about fieldwork, understanding uh, the perspectives of different populations, we have to take an emic approach, which is uh, understanding the insider's perspective, understanding what rights mean, how they're experienced on the ground. But as we are analyzing uh, what this means for for the future of rights, for uh, the improvement of social equality or, or uh, social divides, it, I think it's also important to toggle back and take an ethic perspective and think about um, what we have learned uh, from these insiders, um, how that actually informs theories and the literature on law and society about the power rights and the potential to uh, uh, of of uh, improving or informing uh, social in- inequalities. I think the book's normative position uh, really uh, becomes highlighted towards the end. Um, the book actually has a very powerful ending. I think that what I meant in that sentence was to uh, let scholars, encourage more scholars to empirically investigate the meanings of rights and its impact uh, on the ground on different uh, social groups, especially uh, the populations that have historically been marginalized in uh, 
in certain societies or in their societies, I should say, and see actually how rights can empower them or perhaps in some cases uh, disempower them or, or not bring any improvement to their lives before we make a conclusion or draw a conclusion about whether rights are useful or not. Um, and in that process, I that's why I said we have to also embrace its incoherence in the sense that uh, perhaps different place in different places, different social groups may uh carry out different uh, tactics, different strategies to mobilize rights, uh, incoherence or diversities uh, in the ways in which uh, they reap the consequences of these mobilization of rights. And so we have to uh, embrace and try to understand these uh, different results and outcomes. And from there, uh, form perhaps a more granular conclusion about the uh, possibilities and the limitations of rights. And in that process, we are therefore uh, giving uh, rights a chance and not drawing a conclusion, but letting rights have a chance of becoming different things and and taking on different uh, shapes and forms. Yeah, I think the from what I remember from the book, you actually mentioned that uh, rights in Southeast Asia haven't managed to turn into a, a hegemonic structure, right? Like rights mobilization is just one of various practices that people turn to when they're faced with problems. They can turn to, of course, the law to sue somebody, but people can also turn to uh, religion or village norms instead of um, using legal institutions. So it really has a diversity of the ways in which rights is experienced. Um, can you tell us more about this insight? When I wrote that sentence about how rights is not yet a hegemonic structure in in most um, Southeast Asian societies, I was perhaps in the back of my mind having a conversation with some scholars who, in some cases, perhaps sound a, a right warning bell that, yes, rights can do many things that are positive, but at the same time, uh, perhaps it can also become such an overwhelming structure that it occludes other ways of thinking of solutions. And so I was sort of, in the back of my mind, I was having a conversation with these scholars. And my response, if I were as, as situated in Southeast Asia, to say that, wait a minute, um, this is not the situation in which empirically uh, many people can observe in, in Southeast Asian societies and among social groups. Um, in some cases, rights may be one set of, of uh, discourse or resources that a group of people can resort to, but it's not necessarily the only one, as, as, as you mentioned, there are, there's religion, village norms, and so on and so forth. And, and also, oftentimes, if you empirically investigate the use of, of rights, in this case, uh, constitutional rights or human rights discourse, uh, international human rights discourse in this part of the world, often uh, there is a pushback or there are criticisms or there's retaliation from powerful uh, parties like the state or other oppositional groups that might criticize the use of rights as being um, unsuited for that given culture or society. And these would suggest that rights is not 
so widely accepted, so so not widely in, institutionalized, and therefore it's not really a hegemonic structure, but really uh, in uh, at, at this stage in many of these societies, um, a set of resources that they can turn to, um, and perhaps over time rights might become more institutionalized as a structure, and perhaps the concern that it is a hegemonic uh, ideology might come to fruition. But at this point, empirically, perhaps we are not there yet. Right, yes. That's that's a very helpful way of, of looking at it, actually. It's one thing that people can turn to, but not the only thing that they turn to, depending on their context. Your book is part of the Cambridge Element series in Politics and Society in Southeast Asia, um, edited by no other than Professors Ed Aspinall and Meredith Weiss, of course. And we've featured some of the Element series uh, in the podcast as well. Um, But for our listeners who are not familiar with the series, um, Elements basically invites authors to write a short book, I think not more than 30,000 words, if I'm not mistaken. And the challenge... um, for the author is to write a comprehensive review of the debates in the field written in a clear and accessible manner. Um, Professor Chua, that is quite a task. Uh, There is so much to say about the topic. And I think my impression, at least, is there is a tension between giving a coherent storyline, but also not essentializing the region. So what was your strategy in writing the book? What advice can you give to our listeners who are contemplating writing an overview of their field of expertise but feel overwhelmed by it? When the editors of the series uh, first approached me, they pitched this element as being about human rights in Southeast Asia. And I had to pause for a while when I got the invitation and think, seriously, do I really want to write such a volume? Can I do it? Um, because <laughs> we know uh, the, the, the debates around human rights in the region, and there, there has also been quite a few volumes uh, around this issue of human rights in Southeast Asia, some, some of them looking at particular countries within Southeast Asia, some are more ambitious, looking at the entire region. And I decided that that's not what I want to write, and uh, and and also that something uh, the pitfalls of writing such a volume or the challenges rather for me I feel were not were not something that I wanted to take on. Instead, I stood back and think about, and I tried to think about why I was hesitant. Is precisely uh, the starting point that I ended up with for the volume is that um, the region is so plural. Uh, plural cultures, plural normative orders, legal uh, former legal systems, and so on and so forth, uh, different genealogies of rights, and also uh, different outcomes when people mobilize rights. And so I, I responded to the editors and suggested, can I uh, do something that is more suited to my uh, type of research, uh, more of a law and society or sociolegal approach to the study of rights in the region. And we came to, a, to an understanding uh, which eventually uh, became the volume that, that you read. Um, so once I got that sorted out, the pathway was a little bit clear. I was going to start with the three questions that I posed. Um, how do you study rights in a region that's so plural in terms of cultures and normative systems, uh, that is plural in terms of 
the different origins and genealogies and discourses of rights, and plural in terms of the different outcomes when you mobilize rights. And from there, I uh, was able to introduce uh, the study of uh, politics of rights, study of rights mobilization uh, in my field of law and society, and go from there. Finally, Professor Chua, tell us what you're working on now and how we can stay updated with your work. I'm currently uh, working on two projects. Uh, one is looking at the at parental maintenance laws in several Asian countries. That is uh, state laws that require adult children under some circumstances to provide financial maintenance and in some cases uh, emotional support to their aging parents. I'm interested in uh, the conditions under which parents might choose to use this kind of law against their children. Uh, And I'm conducting this research at uh, research sites that include uh, Singapore, Vietnam, uh, certain parts of China, and, and also Taiwan. Uh, the other project I'm working on uh, is with a, an assistant professor at the New School for Social Research in New York, uh, assistant professor uh, Gary Lee, or Jack Jin Gary Lee. We call this project uh, Governing Through Contagion. It was inspired by COVID and the pandemic, but it's not uh, entirely about uh, COVID-19. In fact, uh, we are interested in the developments of government strategies of control against different contagious diseases uh, and how their public health governance strategies and legislation regulations have morphed and changed um, from colonial period to the contemporary uh, period uh, in response to the uh, changes in medical technology and other kinds of technology in response to the uh, attributes and characteristics of different bacteria or viruses that are uh, uh, threatening the populations at that given time. So that's a more of a historical ethnography project that we are working on uh, at the moment. Professor Lynette J. Chua is the author of Politics of Rights in Southeast Asia, published by Cambridge University Press. You've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This has been one of hundreds of conversations about other Southeast Asia-related books on the channel. You can download or stream these interviews free of charge from the New Books Network website or subscribe through your favorite podcast app. Thank you.